Okay, welcome to Kingdom 101, everyone. This is our fifth session, and I'm excited to share this message with you. I just believe that, you know, God has something in here for all of us this evening. Not that He did not have something before, but, you know, sometimes as you are preparing, um, you just know that there's something there, and I, I, I just hope that it will bless you and encourage you. You know we're in the book of Matthew, and praise the Lord, we're going to chapter 2. Tonight, we'll look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Let me read this to you first, and I'll read from the ESV, the English Standard Version, uh, which has a better translation for a couple of phrases here. And we will pray, and we'll get into the lesson tonight. So Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word." that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Scripture, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you have preserved for us a record of all things that have taken place and are still taking place according to the faithfulness of your word. And Lord, we are mindful that all Scripture will reveal Jesus. And that's our desire always, Lord, when we read your word. We want to know Jesus. We want to see Jesus. And we want to have a revelation, a fresh one, of who Jesus is to each and every one of us. So let it be so this evening, Lord. Please be with me. Help me. Enable me by your Holy Spirit, Lord, so that the word that goes forth will be anointed by you and it shall not return to you void. And so we commit this time to you and every heart to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This evening I've entitled the lesson, Go the Distance. Now, I look at this phrase and I realize that it is actually a boxing term. How many of you didn't know that? It is a boxing term that actually means to go all the way to the last round without being knocked out. To go all the distance right to the last round. But of course today, symbolically, we 
quote this phrase, go the distance to mean to, to follow through, right, with what you have committed to complete the course, or in our language, to fulfill an assignment. I'm sorry, I just couldn't resist that. So we want to go the distance. But I have one big question for all of you. Are you willing to go the distance? Are you willing to go the distance? This evening's passage, there are 12 verses. And if you want to camp on these 12 verses, there are just so many things that we can learn from it. I don't think we'll finish in the time that we have. But as I prepared this, and there are just so many angles to approach this, and I really struggled with this. I, I felt later on, I came up with this title, Go the Distance. And this is the question we must hold within our hearts. It's a story that we are very familiar with. We hear it once a year, right? We see it on Christmas cards. And so we tend to be casual with it. But tonight, I will draw four observations from it with you and to share it with you. And I want to go straight into that because I think you know the story. But we will pick out some details along the way so that it will help perhaps clarify certain perspectives we have and more importantly, help us apply this in our journey as we decide to know our assignments and to fulfill them. So if you're ready, let's go to the very first point. As I read this and I observed the characters that are within them, we will be introduced to three groups that we have heard many times. And although it is a declaration of the Messiah, of the King whose name is Jesus, and we've gone through this in chapter 1, if you have not uh, uh, heard it enough, go listen to the recording and review it once more. Matthew's desire is to declare the King. But as I go through the verses, I realize not everyone wants a king. This is point number one for us. We will explore the characters and how they respond to this king that is declared. And it would surprise you that not everyone wants a king. Not everyone responds to a king the same way. Not everyone would receive a king as readily as we would expect. Let's be introduced to the first character. His name is Herod, Herod the Great. Now, since we're going to some detail to have some exposition, I think it's good for you to have a look at his family. Because if you read the Bible, you can be confused which Herod it is. Have you discovered that before? Right? There are quite a few Herods that are mentioned in there. And I want to help you tonight, very quickly. First, there's Herod Achilles, Herod Antipas, and Herod Philip. Now, these three are his sons, not his only sons, but the three sons that succeeded him. These two, called Achilles and Antipas, that's grouped closer together, is from one of his wives. Philip is from another wife. Now, Achilles, soon enough, we will be introduced to this person in Matthew chapter 2, verse 22. He's the one that succeeds the father in that region. Antipas would be further uh, in, in a different region in Galilee or Perea. Herod Philip 
will look after the place further up north, and you will be familiar with this name called Caesarea Philippi. That's named after Philip. Now, in case you are not aware of, Herod Antipas is the one that marries Herodias, which is really the wife of Philip. And that is why John the Baptist takes him to task and says, what you have done is not correct. And so he has him in prison and soon enough beheaded. Okay, so you have these three Herods here, one, two, and three. Now after that, there is his grandson. Now why is there a through line down here? That's because it's from another (laughs) wife, okay, or another son. He is... Herod Agrippa I, the one that's mentioned in Acts, who kills James, the brother of John. And because he kills James and the people were happy, he arrests Peter and puts him in jail because he likes the people to applaud him. This is the same Herod Agrippa who glories in himself and drops dead and gets eaten by worms. After that, right at the end of the book of Acts, you have Herod Agrippa II. This is the one that Paul presents his case to. And Paul says, I am a Roman, and then I'm appealing to Caesar. And King Agrippa listens to him, and it's even recorded in verse 28 that he was almost persuaded to be a Christian. But later on, he sends Paul to Rome, and we know how the story ends or continues from there. So this is Herod the Great, but that's only his family. Who is he really? He's from a group of people called the Edomians. Now that's another name for the Edomites. Sound familiar? So the Edomites have always been having a little bit of a struggle with their brother. Okay, so they're always fighting between the two, which is really Jacob and Esau. So Edom and Israel later on. And we read in the Bible that the Edomites did not regard the people of Israel very well. It, it extends all the way to the back. Okay? They served very well under a group of rulers called the Hasmoneans. All these happened in the, the 400 intertestamental period. They are descendants of Hezmon, a Jewish family that later included the Maccabees, and the high priests and kings who ruled in Judea, 100 plus BC to 63. This group was forced to convert to Judaism, so they were not fully Jews per se, but they were forced to convert it, so technically they are Jewish. So think about this. Herod is supposed to be Jewish, but he's an Edomite, so he's like a half-Jew. He gets into good favor with the Romans under Pompey and Julius Caesar. Later on, he's promoted to be the governor of Judea, and he is pushed up to be called the king of that region, and he holds the title, the king of the Jews. Now, do you think the Jews are happy about that? No, it's a half-Jew. He doesn't know his stuff. You know, uh, he's an Edomite. Why should he be called the king of the Jews? Anyway, he was a Great builder, he contributed a lot. He was the one who even extended the temple. So the temple was beautiful in part because of him. But still, the Jews did not like him. 
he was also someone who wanted to guard his kingship so tightly that whenever there was a threat, it was recorded, he actually killed his own wife and his sons and disposed of anyone who would stand in the way or would threaten him in his throne and his power. This is the Herod we're talking about. So when we read, when, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. It was bad news. Here was a group of magi that came, enters into Jerusalem, and they were like totally politically incorrect. Where is he, the one who is born king of the Jews? And this word gets back to Herod. Obviously, he's not happy. And when the king is not happy, everyone is not happy. And so we see someone here who is the king of the Jews not really wanting another king to come into that same domain. Think about this. He was threatened. I mean, why would he be threatened? He's super powerful. He can dispose anyone. He's super powerful, and yet he's threatened, we read, of actually a young child. The one who's just born, who's supposed to be king of Jews, and here is this Lao Chiao, veteran soldier, you know, threatened by a young child. And I believe deep within him, there was an insecurity, you understand? And people who are insecure, they would crave for their position, crave for their power, and they would hang on to prestige. People who are insecure will not want people to tell them what to do because they live for themselves. And when someone is in control, he still wants to be in control. He does not want anyone to be over him or to be reigning above him. Those who would agree with him, he would keep and you'll be good friends. But tomorrow, if you disagree with him, guess what? You will be promptly removed. He's insecure. He, he, everyone has to be his yes man. He will probably think, I know best, I'm strong, and I'm king. So obviously, when news comes that there is a king of the Jews who is born, he's not happy. And he's totally now insecure. He's on the lookout for this guy. You know, as we look at Herod, I look at this and I said, we have to be careful. You know? Do you realize that, that actually in us is also a Herod? There's a Herod in each and every one of us. There's a certain insecurity in us. There's a certain desire for us to be our own king. We, we want to have the final say. We, we want to be in control. You know, we are, we are actually inwardly more motivated, totally self-oriented. Who wants to say amen? Not too loudly, but you agree with me, don't you? Right? There is a Herod in us. And you know something? If we had our way, if someone comes and stands in our way, we would remove them too. It's just that sometimes we don't, we don't possess the power to be able to do it. Is it not true? But if you have it, will you not do it? We are identified by our position. We wield our power and our rights over others. And today you're seeing it more and more. The voice of the internet now is so strong. And the craziest thing is that if you are so confident and so courageous and so powerful, why do you remain anonymous? 
It shows you that you have a Herod in you, but you dare not admit it. Because you are insecure because someone may come after you and lob off your head. And we have to beware of, of this Herod in us because we still want to be king. And to have someone rule over us, no, we, we don't really want it. And so before we look at Herod and say, oh, this guy insecure, uh, uh, you're so, you know, such a tyrant and all that, maybe we should look inward. Do we want a king? I'll tell you what we want. We want the benefits of a good kingdom. We may not want the king. We want the smooth running of a good government, but we will still complain about all the things we have to do. We want all the blessings, but do we want his ways? There's a Herod in all of us. Not everyone wants a king. How about the second group of people that we are introduced to? And so Herod being insecure and he hears this and he gets really upset and all Jerusalem is troubled with him. He calls for his, what we call his, his spiritual advisors. And you know all kings and leaders would have their uh, spiritual advisors of, of different uh, orientations. And in verse 4 of Matthew 2, it says, And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And so let's be introduced to this group of people. Who are these? The chief priests. These are members of the Sanhedrin. They are representatives, leaders of, of the 24 main orders of priests of those days. Who are the scribes? The scribes were traditionally people who would copy the law. And after that, they became teachers and experts of the law. So when you read in the Gospels, the law year, this would be the scribe. You understand? Huh? They will be the one that would know how to teach the law. They are well-versed in interpreting and applying the Old Testament. What is even more interesting to note is that whilst Herod was a half-Jew, an Edomite, all these were pure Jews. <laughs> and if they were all Jews, then we can safely say they are God's covenant people. Amen? And as God's covenant people, they are the highest the, of the echelon there, the best of the best, or so it seems. They would be equivalent to our scholars and the theologians and the academia and our spiritual leaders of today. They are like up there. That's why they get to wear those hats. And they are supposedly the ones who have studied the scripture and they would know that there's one to come. He is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, the King. And then we read this passage and the word I use to describe them is they were indifferent. They were indifferent. I mean, does it shock you? Does it surprise you? I mean, these are God's people. I mean, they are, they are steeped in, in, in the study of, of the Hebrew Scriptures. They've been waiting for years. But they were indifferent. And I looked at this and I said, Lord, why? 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 I mean, we can gloss over this and, you know, because our pastors tell us, oh, the Pharisee is bad, you know. Oh, don't be like a Pharisee. You know? we, we know these terms. Huh? Don't be a Sadducee. And, and, but I say, why? And I realize, to them, it doesn't matter who is king. As long as they get to do what they had to do, they're happy. They're in positions of power. They get to worship. 
They get to conduct Bible school, right? They, they, they get to collect tithes. Don't rock the boat. If the king allows us to do that, don't change. Because after you change, you don't know who's the next king, man. So we're all right. Otherwise, we lose, lose our freedom. That was more important to them. Let's, let's work with the authorities. Let's enjoy the political alignment and the favor. This must be the grace of God upon us. You see, they were indifferent. It doesn't matter who is king. You can change king ten times. If the ten kings allow them to do what they can do, they will be happy. Then we talk about the Messiah. Kingdom. Nice. Good concepts. Nice principles. Three points, five points, ten points. Create curriculum. Sell. And if the king says, okay, to do that, we're happy. What? We don't really need the Messiah to come. And they were indifferent. And we look at them and we say, oh, bad, bad. But do you know we could be like that too? And for these priests and the scribes that represent the worship of God and, and the law of God, they reveal to us what I call a, a deceptive veneer of religiosity. Deceptive. You, you adhere to a set of rules and worship patterns. You think you're okay. It lulls you into a complacency and a comfort. And as long as you are allowed to continue like that, let's not rock the boat. Don't introduce too many new things now. And they have an appearance of piety, of spirituality, coupled with wealth of spiritual wisdom and, and knowledge. But you realize something? They lack the power. Because when Jesus finally comes onto the scene and He declares the Word of God, the people say, Who is this who teach with authority, unlike the scribes? Now, all these still sound very good and they look very good, but the focus is still on self and the benefits we can derive from such a position. And is it true that many people come to God for the blessings, but they don't really desire to serve Jesus as the King? We're not interested. You talk blessing, I'm going to be here. You talk prophetic word, I'm going to be here. You talk discipleship, I'll think about it. You call prayer meeting, I'll run away. We're indifferent. If it serves my purpose, okay. If not, uh, not everyone wants a king. Can you see this? We look at the third group of characters and we know them as the Magi. In verse 1 and 2, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Before I introduce you to the wise men or the magi, let's clear some misconceptions about them first. From the passage we have read, firstly, they're not kings. So we have to throw away that song in the hymnal. If not, we have to add another syllable. We three magi. And then after that, we have to change because the number is not stated. We, however many magi. It doesn't tell us the number of magi. Now we know the types of the, the number of the types of gifts. 
but it doesn't tell us how many, okay? So if you're happy with one, two, three, okay, I'll give it to you tonight. All right, but let's clear up that misconception quickly. The third thing is that usually you will see the three of them on a, on a camels, right? Coming together or traveling together and those, those three amigos will make their way to Jerusalem. But they probably travel with an entourage. Would you agree? They did not visit Jesus in the manger. Can you change all your Christmas cards? Where did they visit Jesus? The text in our passage says, in the house. And the house in the manger is quite different. And they didn't see baby Jesus. They saw Jesus as a young child. Okay, now, this is not salvation issue, so it's okay. But since we are studying the Bible, I think it's my responsibility to at least highlight that to you. Okay? And each time now, when you come to Christmas, you're going to be so uncomfortable. So who are these magi? They are, as the word we have translated, wise men. And they're probably people who are astrologers, experts in the stars. In the Persian courts, they are known as astrologer priests. They study the, the placement of the, of the constellations. We are introduced to them, actually, in the book of Daniel, where we see those titles as the Chaldeans, the magicians, the sorcerers. Okay? It can apply to these. Now, this word is also used for this guy in the book of Acts called Simon the Sorcerer. Are you familiar? Now, so that guy is a negative example of a magos, okay? Uh, but a magi, or in the plural magoi, can refer to these as wise men who served in the Babylonian or the Middle Persian courts. Now, some people think that maybe they're from the east, they could have come from India. It could even be as far as China. There's some theory also, if you study the scriptures, that they could have come from this place called Sheba. If you remember the queen of Sheba, who came all the way to visit the kingdom because Solomon was so wise and she comes to pay tribute. These could have come from Sheba. Another interesting fact for you, do you know modern day Sheba is? Yemen, which today is devastated. So we don't really know for sure where they are from. We just know they are from the east. So it's fine. Could have been Tamasic for all you know. Yeah? But from all these hints, let's just presume for tonight's study that they did serve in the courts and they were you know, uh, mentioned in the book of Daniel. Now I'm just giving you two pictures here. One of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had in his dream. The different materials. After him was Belshazzar, where there was a handwriting on the wall. That's where you get the proverbial handwriting on the wall phrase to say that your time is up. Okay, it's found against you. It's weighted against you in that. Okay, uh, you will find in these verses, Daniel chapter two, verse two, Daniel chapter five, verse seven, mentions of these wise men. But what were their reactions? If Herod was insecure and the religious leaders were indifferent, we see in the Magi 
that they were very interested in this Messiah. It's like they got wind of it, they heard about it, the news of a coming Messiah. And understand this, they have gone through different kingdoms. And somehow they have heard about this news of a, of a coming king who rules in righteousness, who brings salvation, who will rule in love. And they're saying, count me in. Enlist me. We want this king. Where is he? Jerusalem? We'll go the distance. You see that? Not everyone responds to the good news in the same way. Not everyone wants a king. Based on this first point, I will ask you, would you rejoice at the news of this king called Jesus? Would you see him as a threat in your life? Because you still want to be king. Are you insecure because he asks you to realign and to align with him? Would you be indifferent like the religious leaders? You're happy in church. You've got your cell group. You're serving really nicely. Jesus, thank you very much. Don't, don't ask anything more of me, Can I will see you in heaven. Thank you. Or are you like the Magi, where you know there's something there that He is worthy of worship and that He has every right to rule and reign over you? Are you interested? Will you go the distance? Second point I derived from this passage is we can know the Word and still miss it big time. We can know the Scriptures, the promises of God, and we can still miss it big time. Herod hears of this news and he says, Okay, you talk to me about a king that's coming. Let me check this with the experts. So he brings in the, 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 the cell group leaders and the church leaders of those days and says, you check your scripture and tell me. So we know that they declared in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, a prophecy that was uttered by Micah in chapter, two, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 2. And this is Matthew's second direct Old Testament quotation and fulfillment. Now, when we look at this, we tend to just also read it very quickly because, you know, for me, sometimes I read it and I say, okay, if you say correct, correct. Law. You know, then I, I look down at the footnotes and it says, Micah chapter 5 verse 2. Uh, okay, I, look, I know where it's found. We don't go into the Septuagint. We don't go into the Hebrew, right? Yeah? Because we, we don't check it out. But Matthew makes a point to emphasize certain things and paraphrases Micah chapter 5 verse 2. I believe he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he wants to give understanding and explanation and to make a very, very clear point. Let me point out three things that he emphasizes. Micah says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Ephrathah is an old term for Bethlehem. But Matthew says, And you, O Bethlehem, where? In the land of Judah. Now, you may not have, not rea you may not have realized this, but Judah is mentioned 
along with Judea, they're both the same, four times in this passage. He says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, verse 1, they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, verse 5, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, verse 6, are not least among the rulers of Judah, verse 6. Four times. It's like, guys, if you're reading this, you've got to get the hints. I'm dropping a lot of clues for you. Where is the Messiah coming from? Judah, 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 Judah. Can you see? This is prophecy. He's the one. He's in the line of Judah. Okay? Secondly, Micah says, Bethlehem, who are too little among. Matthew clarifies, emphasizes, and says, Bethlehem, you are by no means the least. Oh, this is a change, you understand? Okay, you may say, oh, it's just phrasing. No, 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 no. There's every reason why he's doing that. He's saying, Bethlehem, you may have been small and little, but from this point on, you will be insignificant no more. And it's a beautiful thing because I look at this and I said, Lord, you have a way of using small things and making things beautiful from it. You have a way of bringing you know, significance from something that's insignificant. Do you remember this is character called Gideon in the Bible, in the book of Judges, right? And, and the angel comes and says, Oh, you mighty man of valor. It's like the angel coming to Mary. You remember the last time I shared with you that, she, that, that he goes, uh, Oh, you know, highly favored, richly blessed. And Mary goes, What are you talking about? It's the same thing with Gideon, right? You know, oh, mighty man of valor. And Gideon goes, Hello, we are the smallest clan. My family is the most insignificant. Bethlehem, you are too little among the clans of Judah, the smallest. Nobody pays any attention to you. But now, you are by no means. There's one other name that sort of resonated in my heart when I saw this. That name is Archippus. Almost anonymous. People don't know Asman. But if you are willing to be interested in the things of the kingdom. Can I declare over everyone who says I'm a keepers, you will be insignificant no more. God uses the weak things to show His strength perfect. God uses the foolish things to confound the wise. This is a kingdom principle, but today we're always looking at bigger is better the third thing is that Micah says, there's one who is to be ruler in Israel. And Matthew adds, and from you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And this is a direct quotation of the declaration over King David in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 2. The one who led Israel out and brought them in. The Lord has said to you, David, you shall shepherd Israel and be ruler of Israel. Because to rule, someone can just rule and dominate with power and with force. And that's what Herod would have done. And everyone who, have, who has conquered the nation of Israel, they would have done that to rule with power and to, with force. But they did not shepherd them. 
But here will come a king, the Messiah, who will not only rule in righteousness, but will love you and will care for you and will have compassion. He will lead you in and he will lead you out. This is the son of David in the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the one that is born. How did Herod respond to this? I remember he was converted to Judaism. His family was. So, which means he had no choice. Let me give you a paraphrase. It's like you being born into a Christian family. No choice. My parents brought me to Sunday school. That's it. You just have to memorize the scriptures. That's all. You do it well, you get more stickers. You more stickers, you exchange for toys. So you know your scriptures. And after a while, it's like, yeah, something like that, like somewhere there. Like. Give me a hint. Is it New or Old Testament? So Herod was supposed to know the scripture as a Jew. He doesn't. But the thing is that even after it was made known to him, he wasn't interested in aligning. Because insecure people are like that. Their security is not in anything else but their position, their power and their prestige. And you understand this. And they're afraid that if someone takes this away, they, they, they have nothing else left. Why? Because they've worked hard for it and that's why they feel they have a right to keep it. So if you bring the word in, they say, no, 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 thank you. I'm not going to submit to the authority of the word because I am king and I am the authority. So you can know the word and you can still miss it with time. The funny thing about insecure people is that they don't realize that true security is found in the word. And they can't see it. And they refuse to submit to it. So once again, friends, could we be like Herod? We could love the word, but only the parts we like. Those that are Facebook-worthy, we like. Those that are Twitter and Instagram-worthy, we like. Those that prick our hearts, we say, thank you very much. <laughs> Not for me. We are convicted by the word sometimes, and after we rationalize, no, I, I, I don't think so. We are confronted by the word, but instead of allowing the word to change us, we prefer to change the word. We don't want to submit to the word of the king. And perhaps, like Herod, we could hide behind a false pretense of maybe going for Bible study, you know, listening to message 52 times a year. If you multiply that by 20 years, it's a thousand messages. Has it changed anyone? And sometimes it's easier to abort or kill the word in the womb before it has a chance to rule and reign in your life. How about the religious leaders, supposed experts of the law? They knew the scriptures. The word had no effect on them. You know something for these people? Traditions, traditions were more important for them. For them, it can be academic. There's no power. There's no conviction. They can preach with context, with footnotes, but no relevance, no application. And the worst thing is they're not even interested in prophetic fulfillment. They're aware what the word is saying, but they were apathetic. <laughs> and although they can quote the word, the funny thing is this, you know. Herod asks them, is this so? They reply, for thus it is written by the prophet. And yet they were indifferent. They will quote the word, but they're not interested. After that, Herod says, Okay, Magi, 
you go do your little thing, you go look for this king, you know, and meeting is adjourned. Where did the priests go? They went back. They went back to church. They, they were not even interested. They didn't even check it out. And what's the funniest thing? Jerusalem to Bethlehem is five to six miles. One bus stop, two bus stops. They weren't even prepared to go the distance. They'd rather go back to status quo. And this is what I'm, I'm passionate in declaring. You know, friends, sometimes we hear the word and we think, oh, wow, beautiful, yeah, amen. After the benediction, we go back to status quo. And we think, man, it's so far away. I can't reach it. Man, it's six miles. The thing is, it can be so near and yet it can be so far. And it's not about us reaching God. God came. His name is Emmanuel, God with us, and we can miss Him. Do you know Moses said the same thing in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 14? He says, please, don't look at heaven as if the word is so far. The word of the Lord is near to your mouth, in your heart, whether you would obey. It is so near, but we won't go the distance. Maybe we are indifferent. Maybe that's why the awakening is needed. Then the Magi, we know they are interested, but the question for me is, how did the Magi know about the Messiah and His star? Was it one day, you know, I mean, you know, all in Matthew, you were having dreams, dreams, you know, perhaps it was a dream, possible. But let me quickly share with you some points I believe, you know, would have contributed to this. If they were in the courts that Daniel once served, hundreds of years ago, then these would have had tradition and oral tradition passed down. They would have been impacted in some way by the testimony of Daniel. They would have had in their records even the words of Daniel. But they saw not just a scripture that was there, they saw a life lived out in consecration, in obedience to the word, whether it was this king or that king, whether it was this kingdom or that kingdom, Daniel stayed true to this king called the Messiah, the God that he serves. Through Daniel, they saw the wisdom, the power and the faithfulness of Yahweh and through their friends also. And it's very highly probable that they were exposed to the person in the name of Yahweh, the kingdom of God, and also the Hebrew scriptures. They became interested in this God of Israel. They became interested in this king, and not only the king, but the kingdom that would last forever. And it didn't matter to them that they belonged to another kingdom because they looked forward to now the real deal. In the book of Daniel, it was also recorded a 70 weeks prophecy that says that, you know, there will be a restoration of Jerusalem. So in your hearts, they would know. It's Jerusalem, we know. When the moment you see Jerusalem being restored, this prophecy is kicking in. Which means the Messiah will come because after a certain time, the Messiah will be cut off. So from the time of the restoration of Jerusalem, these wise men, that's why you call them wise, they were on a lookout because they were what? Interested. 
Do you know this guy called Balaam? I mean, we always look at him and he says, oh, he's a naughty prophet. But however naughty, God used him. And that's the power and the sovereignty of God. He was asked to curse the people of Israel. And every time he opened his mouth, a blessing would come out. Until the fourth oracle, he couldn't take it anymore. God reveals something to him and through him. And he declares in verse 17 of Numbers 24, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab, break down all the sons of Sheth, Edom shall be disposed, and so on. Balaam, in the book of Numbers, has already prophesied this. And if the wise men were exposed to Hebrew scriptures because of Daniel and his friends and the, and the diaspora you know, or, or, the, or the dispersion of the Jews, the exile of the Jews, then they would have read the Old Testament. And as they studied the scriptures, they saw this. Not only that, we know this famous one and familiar one from Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, for your light has come. Now, there are other verses, but I'm just sharing with you that, you see, the verses could be there, but it can mean nothing if you are not interested. I mean, you can go through program after program, study after study, but if you are not interested, then you are not engaged. They didn't just attend Kingdom 101, the wise men. They were literally moved by scriptures when a time came for them to respond. They were willing to make that distance. Depending on where you think they come from, it could have been 800 miles. You see, we can know the word and still miss it big time. Because if you're insecure, you'll never submit to the authority of the word. If you're indifferent, you will know the word and it's just a plaything to you. It'll make you feel good. You just want to be status quo. But if you are interested, then you're on, a, you're on a lookout. You're seeing the signs of the times. You're seeing prophecy being fulfilled. You may not understand everything. You know, there are lots of funny theories nowadays. All the more, you must be interested in the Word of God. Amen? Third thing is that, as I started this, I see we don't worship His star, but we are directed by it to Jesus. We don't worship His star, but we are directed and drawn by it to Jesus. And if you look at this, the Magi saw His star when it rose. And after that, they were guided by that star again after the courts of Herod to the place where the child was. So I like to look at this star as if it's like a follow spot. If you have been to a play before, this is the follow spot. But you don't worship the follow spot. The follow spot points to what you need to look at, right? And that's what the follow spot is for. You follow the spot. And so if it's a ballerina or it's an it's a artist that's singing, you know, or a character that, uh, or even a chair that, that the director wants you to look at, the, the follow spot would train its beam on that because he wants you, or at least that, that light is only a signal to show you what you should be paying attention to. And so, 
we see that it is about attention and direction. We don't worship the follow spot. We worship Jesus. As I looked at this, I'm reminded that God gives us signs that points to Jesus. God would shine a light to Jesus because He is the main thing, the main event, the main person. And everything will always point to Him. But sometimes we get so caught up with the signs. We so get so caught up with the manifestations. We get so caught up with the miracles and we begin to worship the miracles more than the one who gives the miracles. And that's why the Jews kept saying, you know, will you show us a sign? Show us a sign. And Jesus says, look, no more sign for you. Enough. Because we've given you sign after sign after sign after sign and you're still missing it. But the Magi were clear. They were very clear. They saw the star. They were attracted and drawn by it. They were directed by it. But they worshipped Jesus. And so friends, chase after Jesus. Don't chase after the signs. Understand that there's a star and there's a scepter, remember? A star shall rise up of Jacob and there will be also a, a scepter. So we know who the true star is. It is Jesus, but don't miss his scepter. Sometimes we can chase after Jesus like a star, like a, like a Hollywood icon. Ah, and wow, so beautiful. Oh, it's all about Jesus. Ah, it's not about you being emo. He is the true star. But don't forget, He's going to hold a scepter. So you're not running after some fad. You're not running after some you know, a celebrity. No, you are coming under His rule. This is the point. There is a star and there's a scepter. Today we're chasing all kinds of things. And that's what we have to be worried about if we are not focusing on Jesus. The third thing about this is that when we look at the star and we want to go the distance for Jesus, there is a requirement of waiting and watching. Now, depending on how wild your imagination can be, do you think that the star came out and then waited for the Magi to put on their clothes, to pack their bags? And then after the star began to say, okay, night, thank you, star, you can move now. The star moves, and then take one step. The star moves, and you take one more step. You know, and they're, they're all through, possible, not impossible. I'm not saying it did not happen. But to me, unlikely. God can make a star brighter than the noonday, just like the one that whacked Paul off the horse. Possible. But would it be true that if it was all the way, then it's only at night, what? The daytime, no star. So they would have to wait. And when the time came again for the night, they would watch again for that star. Then they would follow that star again. And I looked at this like a waiting and a watching is that these people are going the distance to Jesus and for Jesus, but it involves waiting and watching. It involves waiting and watching. And along the way, there can be threats, there can be danger. Along the way, they could be distracted by other stars too. And symbolically, I perhaps you know, warning all of us that, yes, we want to look for Jesus, who is the true star. We know that theologically, we know that cognitively, but Paul warns, you be careful because someone else will come to preach another Jesus. 
And when this person preaches another Jesus, this Jesus is also very attractive. That star also shines very bright. But in the same breath, in that same chapter of Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11, then Paul says, you be careful because, you know, Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. And his ministers, you know, ministers of righteousness. And in the final days that there will be deception. And so you may be saying, I want to go the distance for Jesus, that bright star. But suddenly there's another star that's bright. There's another star that's bright. Which star do you follow? You need to know your master, you see. If you want to go the distance for Jesus, don't worship the star. Don't worship someone because the website looks nice. Don't, don't worship someone because, you know, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a great following, so something must be right. It's nice. I'll admit to you, numbers are encouraging. Amen? I'm encouraged by numbers, but if we only look at numbers, we might be deceived, friends. Follow the right star. Submit under the rule of the scepter. Don't just go for the star. Remember the scepter. Watch, wait, move. Last point is a very simple one. If you're interested, don't hang out with the insecure and the indifferent. Is that, is that a practical thing for you? If you're interested, don't hang out with the insecure and the indifferent. Why? Because they have a way of appearing interested, but all they are interested in is killing your interest. Have you been there? Have you realized this? I mean, you go back and tell them, well, you know, the Lord said this. The Lord has showed this to me. This is, they look at it like, hmm, huh, yeah. Are you sure or not? Huh? Maybe these are wrong. Why? Because they don't want to lose you. If you hang out with the insecure and the indifferent, their only interest is to kill your interest. What should we do then? These may sound too simplistic, but I think it will be good suggestions. Gather with like-minded people with the same interests. Who says amen? Find someone with the same interests. Make sure the interests are aligned with God first, okay? Because you can have a wrong alignment still. And as you do that, look out for each other's interest in Jesus so that we ourselves do not become insecure and indifferent over time. What does that mean? You see, we have to look out for one another's interests. It doesn't mean only materially. I want to protect your interest in Jesus, and I want you to protect my interest in Jesus. Because as I'm on the road of sanctification, and so are you, I may start out right, but along the way, I could become insecure because I want to hold people or hold things to myself. You understand? I could move to a comfort zone or power platform, and my interests could shift, and I could become insecure. At the same time, I could become indifferent because over time, I can become jaded. or oh, been there, done that. Same message, what? As if never here before, awakening. Everyone wants to say awakening, the next thing you can do is align your interests with the interests of the king. Lord, I delight in you so that you will grant me the desires of my heart. But I want the desires of your heart to be 
the desires that will be in my heart. And God will grant those. You see, you need an alignment. It's not just, okay, Lord, I'm interested. Where do I go now? What do I do? If you're only interested in yourself, wrong alignment. If you're only interested in having a good time in church, wrong alignment. If you're only interested in feeling a belonging in a cell group, wrong alignment. If you're only interested you know, in serving so that you feel wanted and you feel important, wrong alignment. But as you align with the King, all those things flow naturally. Amen? So align with the King. Next one. Be on assignment with the King to reach the insecure and the indifferent. Very different now. <laughs> okay? Your mission is not so much to hang out with them. Your mission, now that you have aligned and you know and you're protecting, you are in the right uh, environment with one another already, no problem. Now you go reach out to them and keep declaring the good news of the kingdom. Because God still loves the insecure and the indifferent. Go the distance. Go the distance. Friend, which are you? Are you insecure? For whatever reason? Are you indifferent? Or are you interested? You know, the Magi, I like to say that they ran their race. And one of the Greek words that's used to translate the English race is this word called stadion. And stadion is where we get um, a measure of distance called stadia, translated or uh, uh, converted into miles of furlongs. We get the English word stadium from this word. But it means a measure of distance. So friends, if you want to run your race, there is a distance. And perhaps for the Magi, their one main assignment was just to go and seek Jesus. And they did. One assignment. Main one. Make that travel. Go the distance. They went the distance. They fulfilled their assignment. And now it's recorded in the Scriptures by Matthew for all eternity. We have an example in these Magi's, you know, that they have run their race and they have completed their assignment and they have gone the distance. And you know, through them, we have a glorious message that the Messiah came from the Jews, but is not limited to the Jews. These were Gentiles. Those nearest could well be the ones who are fathers. Those who are aliens and foreigners are invited to draw near to Jesus by His blood. Regardless position, power, talent, or ability, Jesus welcomes all and invites them into His kingdom. But not everyone will respond in the same manner. We all have a choice. Don't let insecurity, indifference kill the interest in your heart for Jesus. Let me just close with this statement. You know something that Jesus went the distance for us. All the way to the cross. Will you go the distance for Him? <laughs> Are you interested in that? 